Stay in the know with Radio 2000 Podcast. So let's start with countries that are restricting access for the unvaccinated. And what impact does this have? I've seen protests, people protesting across the country, across the globe. What's happening? I mean, so simply, you know, the, the issue here is that countries are trying to figure out how, how to get back into some semblance of normality. Yeah. And... We are finding in a domestic context where some companies are already rolling out mandatory vaccination. And then we see in countries that then limit people's experience if you're unvaccinated. Mm. And I think it's quite critical for us to understand, in in essence, the the economics of vaccination as well, right? Um, The, you know, the studies that came out of the U.S., for example, going way back to influenza, where the the cost of, of of vaccination itself was somewhere between nineteen and twenty three dollars, but for those who weren't vaccinated, the impact it would have on the health system would go up to nine hundred dollars. Oh, and so, simply the this idea around anti-vaxxers, etc., is that we forget that one of the critical things that that becomes a negative spillover effect is the fact that there's actually big pressure that comes into our health mm. system and we've already got a pressured health system. And and so when we look at countries like Australia, Austria as well, yes. and, and many other countries, they're coming saying simply that if you're not double vaccinated, you can't do certain things. We heard South Africa when Bafana Bafana was playing, where they had 2,000 supporters that were allowed to come into the stadium and they say, if you're not vaccinated, you can't watch a soccer game. So simply, I think uh, we're moving into a space where uh, everyone is looking for a new, for how we exist in this norm, in, in this new normal, and and we just can't be any more patient with with people who uh, I guess don't understand yeah. the the continued impact that this continues to have on our economy. Now let's talk about boosting SMMEs in South Africa. What real opportunities are there for us to consider? Um, I think you know the the this is probably one of really the most important conversations we really should yeah. be having right now in terms of our economy. Um, I, I'll just make an example. Uh, I'll, I'll give you maybe the context is that um, in terms of SIPSI, we've got about 3.2 million registered companies uh, with with SIPSI and. As of uh, the the latest tax statistics, we had 804,000 companies that were assessed for tax. Mm. Of those, there were 200,000 companies that had positive taxable net income. Mm -hmm. And of those, 380 of those companies contributed to 60% of our tax collection from a corporate income tax so simply 60% of our tax is coming from 380 companies and what that means is that we've got a very big industry concentration problem in South Africa and we've got a big risk on on, on organizations that then become too big to fail we saw the likes of Edcon when they failed close to 30,000 people lost jobs in the Mm. country and so simply we've really got to de-risk the entire economy from a concentrated tax base, from a, a company point of view. And so one of the things I usually then speak towards is that we got very particular industry structures in South Africa 
where a lot of the formal industries tend to mirror uh, the informal industry. And so um, I'll make some examples. Um, from an informal point of view, the personal care space is the industry that actually employs a lot of young black women, yeah. and that's the industry with hair, with mm. um, creams and all of the mm. things, that a broad personal care space. But as well, we've then got a, a, a very established pharmaceutical, pharma retail space with the likes of Click yeah. and many other organizations as well in that space. And one of the questions we asked, we know that when, for example, Clicks had a racist incident that they were dealing with, the first thing they said they would do is that they bring some yes. small and medium enterprises into the supply yeah. chain. question I'm asking is that why did it need that kind of mm. incident for the formal sector that is run so parallel to the informal sector to be able to do that. And so we must ask those questions. When um, SASA grants come out in, in our, um, in, from, from government, 83% of the money that is spent on SASA um, actually goes into food retailers. So how do we ensure, as government, for example, that we talk to the likes of shop to say, no, we're simply writing you a check by giving out grants, yeah. so how do we ensure that you bring small businesses through your procurement process into then uh, a, a process or, or programs of education, SME development, and all of those things to ensure that then the quality or the yields you want are at the right standard. So we've got to ensure that corporates of Africa truly comes into a social compact. You know, we're talking about how the structure of our economy really... It's so interesting in the way in which the for informal sector tends to mirror the formal sector. And and simply for me, I'm saying that must inspire us to think about how we truly socially compact from private sector to civil society to public sector and bringing businesses on board, right? Yeah. Um, the, the sectors, I mentioned personal care for young women, yes. but for young men, it's it is the taxi industry, it mm. is the automotive and, and auto parts and auto body industry that does employ them too. And so we've got um, such an established, for example, exporting automotive industry in South Africa. We're now the largest seller of C-classes in the world. Oh, wow. And so how do, how do we bring um, these young men who are so driven and, and, and so energized to into the... Uh, OEM uh, procurement space for these organizations. How do we help them capacity uh, build for themselves so that they actually can be employers and tax contributors? And these are the things that we really need to be thinking about. And then the last point, of course, is around um, what we often speak about, which is called uh, GERD, or Gross Expenditure on Research and Development. Mm. Simply, it's and how much do we invest in research and innovation. Mm. We've got a country that mm. is uh, has become disillusioned to its young people. Yeah. And these are the people who, who are the innovators, the people who are energetic and able to, to take the risks there. Mm. Why don't we truly create a space and a platform for them to do that? We see that Stellenbosch is doing a hell of a lot in creating a Silicon Valley in South Africa. But however, the challenge is that it becomes... Um, it, it, it's not inclusive in its yeah, design. It's so how do we thing. think about creating a more inclusive space for broad-based participation of young people into the innovation process? 
um, Israel, for example, 2008 was a water scarce country. They increased their GERD from about 2% of GDP to about 5%, and now they accelerated the investment sure. into desalination technology that makes them able to take seawater and convert it into water. Wow. And now they're a water abundant country. It's an investment into research uh, and, and development. In South Africa, um, the NDP says our target for uh, GERD expenditure is about 1.5% of GDP. As of last year, we spent only 0.65% of our oh. GDP on research and development. I think these are the things that are going to ensure that young uh, people come back into the economy, small businesses participate in the economy, and these so critical for us to ensure that this becomes a capacity-building exercise that also de-risks the economy from the tax risk that it currently has from an in, uh, corporate income tax collection. Spitzer, we don't have time. Lastly, I want us to wrap this pillow talk with uh, your global story. And if you can do that in a minute, I'd love that. I'll actually make it a very interesting local story. Nice. Um, simply, we've got, um, you know, uh, a new mayor in, in, in the city of Johannesburg. Yes, it's we a woman do. Yes, looking we do. forward to seeing what kind of contribution she'll bring. Yes. We, we heard from the ruling party around the district development model. There's a whole lot of literature that talks about, for example, we call it ALF or ethnic and linguistic fractionalization. Simply speaks to the fact that when you've got more uh, homogeneity in the way in which society is organized, you tend to have more policy cohesion. So I'm looking forward to see whether or not this coalition approach that is taken right now will see us have a lot more policy cohesion, whether it will actually truly result in a lot more uh, value uh, extracted from, uh, I think, uh, a, 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 an economy where a lot of people sat back and say, we don't know who we want to vote, so we're not going to vote. We've got now an, a, 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 a woman, a black woman, truly Incredible. coming up and stepping up and saying she can lead our economy. Excited to see what she'll do. Radio 2000 Podcast.